It's 12 and Off, Season 11, Episode 8B, with your host, Jonathan Malone, and guest host, Catherine Palin. 12 and Off is a podcast of Christian faith and culture in the modern age. Jonathan Malone is the pastor of the First Baptist Church of East Greenwich, Rhode Island. Catherine Palin is the Associate Executive Minister for Elder Care Ministries for the American Baptist Churches of Rhode Island. This podcast was brought to you by The Earth. The Earth. Still here. Still wanting to be noticed. Still hoping you take care of me someday. The Earth. And we're back. So, thank you, Earth, for sponsoring this podcast. I deeply appreciate it. We're here in the deep conversation of, uh, of episode 8, season 11. This is a conversation I had with Catherine Palin about death. You would think death would be the sponsor. I don't know why I didn't get that as a sponsor. I need to look into that. So, uh, Catherine is, works with Elder Care Ministries. That doesn't mean she only works with death, but it's something that comes up quite a bit. And um, she brings just some good awareness. It's an important conversation. And I would say it's a life-giving conversation. And I mean that. I say that without any irony. Really. It's a good conversation. Uh, Death is something we wrestle with. It's all the time. You can't avoid it. So it was good to sit down with Catherine. We had a face-to-face conversation. That's always nice. And to talk about death. So I hope you enjoyed this deep conversation with Catherine Palin about death. 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 I'm here with Catherine Palin. Catherine is officially the Associate Executive Minister for Elder Care Ministries of the American Baptist Churches of Rhode Island in the United States, a region of the American Baptist Churches USA. <laughs> Can I make it any more formal? Right. Uh, yeah, so yeah, Catherine, it's good to have you back on the show. Thanks, Jonathan. Last time you were on the show, you were the pastor of Central Baptist in Jamestown. And things have changed, and that's a whole, that could be a whole other episode on its own. We don't need to get into that. But now you're doing elder care ministries, uh, and which is fantastic. Uh, uh, someone told me just yesterday, someone uh, told me that uh, in 1970, the, the, the city of Warwick went from like, I'm going to make up some numbers, something like, you know, 80,000 to like 200,000. And he says in that time, and now it has the same amount of people, but the size of the schools has decreased, but the population has stayed the same. People are getting older. They <laughs> are, and that's it's a trend that's not going to going to change anytime soon. So. No, until we find that fountain of youth. Right. There you go. And, you and go. I think, uh, so I, I'm still studying the writings of Ponce de Leon because I'm going to find it. There you go. But we're not here to talk about elder care ministries today. That's going to be another episode. So there's two more episodes already Great. to have you back. Great. <laughs> uh, instead, we're, we're going to talk about death. 
uh, and dying. Uh, one has to precede the other, usually, in one way or another. Uh, and you want to, I think it's, we, before we recorded this, Catherine and I were talking about how we're in the midst of Advent, and it seems feels like an appropriate time to be talking about death. Right, I think so. Um, I was showing Jonathan the resource I'm using this Advent, and it really reclaims that early church understanding of Advent as a time of darkness, a time of waiting, yeah. and, and a time of being uncertain that light will return, that mm -hmm. the seasons will, spring will come. And what do you do as you wait in that darkness? And what's it mean to have faith in the midst of that? Yeah. Um, and so in some ways, it seems an appropriate time for us to look at death, um, which brings fear for lots of folks and a, a sense of let's just avoid the topic versus right. how do we sit with that? Mm. And how do we have hope that there is one, with a capital O, oh, okay, yeah. um, <laughs> that comes to bring a new beginning out of what we may see as an ending. Mm. Um, so I think as also if we are able to really look at honestly at death, it may change the way we live. Um, just as the darkness of Advent changes the way we then live um, with a new beginning. Yeah. So before we get into that, do you want to mention the, the Advent resource that you... Sure. Just... The title is All Creation Waits, The Advent Mystery of New Beginnings by Gail Boss. And um, it's... B-O-S-S, Boss. B-O-S-S. Okay. It's a beautiful book. It's a lovely book. And each day, really, she examines an animal and how that wild animal deals with coming of winter mm. and they deal with it differently and... Um, but it's this really thoughtful way about how we deal with that darkness, um, both now, literally, mm -hmm. in the world, but sometimes the darkness of our own spiritual lives or this season right. and what these four weeks can offer us um, that I've, I've found really meaningful this Advent. So. Yeah, let, let's make Advent dark and gloomy again. That's, I love it. I'm, I'll, <laughs> um, so... So people check that out. It's a great Advent book. Unfortunately, this probably won't be posted until the Christmas tide. Um, but you know, it's not too soon to start doing your Christmas shopping for next year. There you go. Never too soon. Um, and what a great way to surprise someone, except by, but by the first Sunday of Advent saying, Happy Advent, here's a gift. There you go. There you go. And then tell them you're not getting anything for Christmas because this was it. <laughs> um, that's my advice to you. So I, when we were talking, you said that churches just really don't, engage talk about death you can, can you say more about we that? don't what that's I've got had this growing sense that sometimes it's hard to engage people in talking about end-of-life planning mm. yeah but it's because I don't think the church intentionally talks about death in an open and healthy way so my comparison mm -hmm. may not may be a flawed comparison that congregations have had trouble talking about homosexuality because we never really talked about sexuality. Right, right, yeah. So I think the same way with end-of-life planning, we have a hard time talking about it often mm -hmm. or engaging individuals to talk about it because we don't talk, openly talk about death. And we mm. don't do it in a way that allows people to ask their deepest questions, to share. Mm. They're sure that right, for right. many of them, I think they think they know what they should believe or what the church believes about death and what happens in that process and what happens after death. 
And that may not fit what they think or what they believe or what they feel, but there's mm. not a safe space for them to talk about that. And so how do we begin to um, create um, safe places or at least brave places where we can come mm. and talk about right. that and to be really open and for pastors? We often kind of trump everything and mention theologians and <laughs> big theories. and um, That's our defense mechanism. I think it is. <laughs> yeah, that I mean, I, certainly I, is mine. I, I think it is. <laughs> yeah. um, I have a colleague, we were talking about this, and he did that very thing. He said, well, da 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 I said, right. well, you won't get to come to our first session. <laughs> well, <laughs> so, see that? No, but I mean, <laughs> I, I think that's where we go, and I think the other piece with it is that mm. pastors are not very comfortable dealing with their own mortality or their own right. things. So we often don't push members in our congregations or those with whom we work to do hard work yeah. because then it makes us also do that hard work. So so I think there's some combinations. But I think it's interesting. There's a movement that started in the U.K. called Death Cafe, and you may have read about it. Sounds delicious. And it's, But what it really does is just give people a place to come and have coffee and talk about death. Mm-hmm. And there's really no agenda. It's a not-for-profit, so it's not trying to sell you products. Right, right. Um, but I think it's interesting that it evolved outside of church life. Yeah. Um, so I think we're well behind, and there's a, a couple of other projects. Conversation Project is a national movement that is about how do you talk about your hopes or wishes for end of life. Right. Again, not that churches haven't incorporated it. It did not start out of the church. That, yeah, that is fascinating because, I mean, the only other place where, you know, well, not the other place. I mean, was, death happens a lot in funeral homes, right? And you would think they would be comfortable having that conversation, but you don't go to a funeral home unless you're already dealing with death. I mean, church is uniquely situated in this place where death is a part of the rhythms of church life, especially for pastors. Like, we encounter it quite a bit uh, and yet and we still have an audience you know so to speak uh, of people who aren't there always to talk about death but are there and you know we, we are in a great place to say let's have this conversation before it is we are at that place of death before we're at the funeral home yeah, so we, it's like we've really neglected a gift I think you're right and I think the other part is that we want to define dying Mm -hmm. as a very kind of specific portion of life that is well beyond our years. The reality is each one of us is dying. We're living, but we're also dying. And so I think somehow think that conversations around death and dying only really kind of belong to those in the third third of life. Right, um, right. Really, if we could... We should start with the nursery kids. Because once they're born, they're dying. They are dying. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, but I think... I if, remind my if... children of that every day. <laughs> <laughs> good morning. It's good to see you. You're one step closer to death. Have a well, good day at school. That's how I... That's, that's how you... That's how it goes. Every At the Malone household, that's how it is. <laughs> but no, I think, but I think if talking about or thinking about death not as defeat, mm. not as something to be feared, not as, but just as that a normal part of our existence as mortals. I mean, I think mm. that's a piece. Mm. Then how do you have those conversations? Um, 
I grew up in a household with a single mom and she had two, she was one of eight children, mm -hmm. but two of her brothers, one had never married and one had divorced many, many, many years before. So my mom was really responsible for all their kind of final arrangements. And not that she resented that at all, but she so did not want my sister and me to have to be responsible for her arrangements the way she had been. Okay, so yeah, yeah. she talked openly from when we were fairly young about kind of what she would want at the end of her life. Um, right. All kinds of things, including that she did not want to live with one of us, um, that, that she wanted to be in a nursing home. Okay, that, you I know, thought so, you were like, I don't want to live with one of you, but the other one I do. No, she did oh, not want okay. to live with either one of us. In, in part, my paternal grandmother had lived with us, and while she and my mom had this incredibly close relationship, right. my mom knew that that changed the dynamics of your mm, your life and yeah, your home. Yeah. And so she was really clear, and she had everything arranged, and we talked about it. But she also didn't fear death. She didn't see it mm. as ultimate defeat. Um, and there were, for her, worse things than death. So I grew up in a household where we talked about death in, a, I think, a healthy way. And right. I didn't realize right. what a gift that was, and really until I became a pastor. Oh, yeah. And then I worked with families where that was the opposite. Um, you didn't talk about death. I had an older member who's, um, she, I had encouraged her to have conversation with her adult children about mm -hmm. her wishes. And she came back and she said, they don't want to talk about it because they said, if we talk about it, I'm going to die. And so we both had a laugh wow. that it yeah. really did not matter whether they had the conversation or not, she was going to die. Yeah, um, yeah. it's but, going to happen anyways. Yeah, so I think that's that piece. So I, I wonder at what point we don't see it as a taboo subject, but rather... Yeah. Um, as something, and by facing death in a healthy way, I think it changes the way we live. So how, I think you're right, and, and I'm not I'm not skirting that issue. I want to, I think That's we'll true. get back to that. Because okay. I was thinking also, I, I think churches, uh, which Christianity has talked about death, but I, I think the way we've talked about it has been so mired in uh, language of salvation. Mm, say more. Um, so the idea, if we're talking about death, is that you're going to die someday, so you better make sure you're right with Christ. Okay. So this is really, I mean, more heavily with, no, not just, the, I was going to say evangelical, but even if we think back, like, make sure those babies are baptized, because mm. if they die, you want them to go to heaven. I mean, and, and that's, I think that, but, but that's where the conversation would start and end. Mm -hmm. You're going to die, so make sure you're right with Christ, get baptized, and now we don't have to worry anymore. And even when I talk to some of my more evangelical brothers and sisters, um, you know, they, they, there's a bragging of like, I knew this person who was on death, their deathbed and I went and got their salvation prayer because they hadn't been to church. And, and then I left knowing that they were going to be okay after they died. And I feel like that's not great pastoral care. Uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of missing more of the present. It's not like, right. I just got to make sure you're set afterwards. You know, so about, so if we have talked about that, it's, it's more in that sense, which is really avoiding, I think, what you're getting at. Right. Um, which, I mean, it's saying, like, afterwards, we're going to be okay. Whether or not, you know, if someone, if you buy into that faith, okay. Um, but it's the dying that we're not speaking to. Right. And I wonder, is, is that where you feel like the conversation should start? Not so much the death, but the dying? I think so. I think it is about, because um, I think when we talk about the death part, we do things, oh, death, where is thy sting? You know, that, right, right. We, so we, again, that's that, even biblically, we use t 
text may be out of context um, to yeah. look at death as defeat um, versus um, as a natural part of right. our life in a world that is finite. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a piece. But to say, how do we... How do we face whatever it is that we are fear around dying? But then if we're able to kind of come to terms with that, then does it change how we value each day we have? Mm. And not to be morbid about it, but that's my my sense is that we, we would live differently. Um, so, so almost in the sense of if you were to die today, would you be okay? Yeah, what you know, I think, and I think one of the things hospice does so well is to help people um, live well until the day they die. Right. So about how do you have conversations? How do you? What are things that you need to come to peace with? Mm. But yeah. what if we did that now? Right. Let's start our palliative care today. Yeah. What if we? What if we didn't put off mending a relationship? What if we didn't mm. put off our bucket list? You know, um, so how do you live this full life um, recognizing that each day could be the last one any of us has? Um, So I think that's the piece. But so I don't know what keeps us from doing that. There's a moment where that becomes trite. I mean, and I'm not dismissing what you're saying because I think it's actually really valuable and and something that I want to stay with. But that it, it becomes so overwhelming. Yeah. to say live each day as if it were your last yeah. that it can almost it can become that motivational poster that you find right. in workplace with a right. kitten hanging on the yeah. branch and then a yeah. dog sawing off the branch and saying hang on hang on there baby because this is going to be your last and the dog laughs as the kitten falls and um those no, are the posters I, think... I had in my office uh yeah <laughs> so i mean it's so if, if but i think um so yeah how do we live with that with that with that tension that uh this could be our last but we don't want to fall into this place of existential um, angst, right? Um, or in this place where um, it becomes, uh, yeah, we just we, we don't even think about it because it becomes so overwhelming. We just make a trite motivational poster about it. Right, right. But so I and I would never probably say live like this is your last day. I know um, you would, but, but but I think there is. But how do you say if I see life as a gift? Mm-hmm. How do I make the most of that gift? You know, what are the things I most want to do? It really is for me about setting different priorities and about being yeah. awake. Um, so you know, one of the times that this actually came occurred to me, and I wasn't anything I did. I was it was at a funeral for an infant. Mm. Uh, you know, die um, sits, and um, and the the person who gave the the message. Um, I wasn't sure what he was going to do. I was the associate pastor of the church. And and he said, now let's realize what kind of impact this child has had in our life. Let's look at the gift that this child's life was for us. And, and you know, I think the kid, the child was maybe three or four weeks old. I mean, not not a long life at all. And and to to take that turn and to say there still was a real gift in even these three or four weeks... Um, I think it was really a profound thing to do, a really brilliant thing to do. And, and, and now making this connection of if we can do that with an infant, that might be the beginning of the conversation around death that um, as a church we are to have to say this wasn't a life that was wasted or a life. I mean, there's a loss there. There's grief there to be um, honest about that. But we can also say even the day 
is it was a gift right um, which is not an easy thing to do and what a bold sermon to preach to these parents that are you know wrecked with grief right um, and you know this pastor he knew the parents he knew he it was it was everything was right as far as like pastoral care and all of that um, but it's one of those that just sat has stayed with me for a while and i'm now making this connection with this understanding of life right 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 no that's that's really a good one of the things i wonder too in when it comes to the church is um while most of us would want to say we don't buy into the prosperity gospel right i think there's a little bit both in american oh, sure. life and in the christian church in the united states that is that. So one of my favorite new books, um, it's about a year old, is the title is Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. Oh, okay, good. I and, was waiting for that um, tagline. Kate Bowler teaches at Duke Divinity School and in her mid-30s, uh, she grew up um, Mennonite in Manitoba, so did not oh, grow okay. up in prosperity gospel, did not grow up in the United States. Yeah. She'd done her, um, but her dissertation was on the prosperity gospel. And so um, she got her dream, she married her high school sweetheart, yeah. got her dream teaching position at Duke Divinity School as soon as she finished her PhD. They had a, wow. a young son and she was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. Oh, wow. And had to come to grips with, there was a little bit of her that believed that she'd done all the right things, she'd been right. a good person, Yeah. she worked hard, how could this happen to her? And yeah. so um, she had to come to grips with theologically how she could be in relationship with God. Mm. Um, yeah. That she admitted she'd always believed that, oh, yeah, there'd be some bumps, but God would always somehow make a way. Right. And that no longer is her belief. Doesn't mean that God isn't present. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so I think there is some of that prosperity gospel that right. in perme permeations may, is part of what we have. Yeah. Um, That's, I mean, I get that because it's so hard because I want to preach that no matter how hard life is, God is going to stay with you and God will lead you through the best way. But yet, when you face tragedy like that, that's a hard sermon to hear. And it may not be the right sermon. I mean, I mean it, it may be a very inappropriate sermon to preach um, to someone that struggles with that. And, and I think that does um, connect with the idea of death. I think the, the, the orthodox theological answer has been, it may be hard now. This gets back to like the only way we have dealt with death. It may be hard now, but after you die, you'll be with God in heaven and you'll be rewarded. So that's how God makes a way. But that feels shallow. And she would argue that um, both medical personnel but also clergy mm -hmm. aren't very good at sitting with people who've received horrible news mm. or who face horrible futures. That we, um, let me just yeah. read a little bit. Um, she talks about, she teaches church history. So, okay. you know, she teaches about the First Great Awakening and religious responses to the Civil War. Um, she doesn't teach them, her students, how to perform baptisms, officiate weddings, or conduct funerals. And I've certainly never told them what to say when they visit someone who is dying and how not to sit on her couch, mouth full of cookies, and ask endless questions about how cancer treatment works. 
I did not tell them how few of their words are needed, but how much their hands are wanted. A hand on my back as I tear up, a hand on my head for a soft prayer for healing. When I feel I am fading away, these hands prop me up and make me new. Yeah. And um, she tells the story about um, when they found out her diagnosis, they sent in a first-year resident to tell her the news. Oh, jeez. And she said to him, when you give me news like that, you at least have to hold my hand. Mm. So I think she would argue that the two professions that often deal with people who are facing death. Yeah, right. Don't do it very well. Yeah, and, and it's discouraging. Um, <laughs> that. So, um, so how do we... Um, and I wonder if that's because we're not comfortable with death. I think there's something really to that. Because how often have we been taught... I, I mean, I hear it again and again. Like, don't say anything. Just sit there. Just be present. Like, I, like this isn't new. This isn't revelatory pastoral care. Right. And yet it's still a problem. It's still a challenge. And and it may be that we are... It, it, yeah, we're not comfortable with... With death, we're not comfortable with what we would define as bad news, um, with suffering, and so we look for an out. Yeah. And I think that out is oftentimes like, well, tell me about the treatment. Right. Right. That's a that's a nice way to escape the deeper issues of the room. Tell me about what they're doing. How long will you be here? Do you think you'll get out soon? That kind of. Yeah, I don't know if we should be comfortable with suffering. I mean, that's the, so suffering and dying might be two separate things. Right. You know, I, I don't think we should ever be comfortable with suffering, but we should be brave. Those of us who are clergy, well, everyone, but especially clergy, should be brave enough to still go into it. Right. And, and to find out what the person wants to talk about. Yeah. Kerry um, um, Egan is a hospice chaplain who wrote a wonderful book on living. And they're mm-hmm. stories about her patients who are dying, but they're really stories about how they, how she learned about life from them. And um, she tells the story of a seminary professor who really belittled her because she was in being a student chaplain, and he said, well, what do you do? And she said, well, I really listen to them. Well, do you tell, talk about God? Well, not so much. I'm really about their families. Well, do you pray? Well, not unless they really ask. And... So mm-hmm. he then tells this story in front of a crowded classroom about the student he'd met, and he was really belittling her without naming her, but she's sitting there. But she realized 15 years later, people really wanted to talk about love. Mm. And in many ways, talking about love, either that they experienced or did not experience in their families, either their family of origin or right. their created family, in many ways, was their way to begin to talk about a greater love mm. and that divine love. Right. Um, but again, it was that her being willing to listen to their stories. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a piece that maybe the church were bad about this. Maybe clergy. Let me rephrase that. Just yeah. hold us accountable. <laughs> that we want to give some some kind of theological statement or some kind of statistics or the latest study. 
Right. What right. I'm reading in the, all this new literature, which I think is really interesting at this time when I don't think we do a very good job, there's just like this flood of new literature, whether it's memoir or physicians reflecting on their own practices. Mm. The powerful part of that literature is in sharing of stories mm, about yeah. how people approach death, what they learn, um, what they learn through the death of a loved one, what they learn through their own impending death, what they learn. Um, and so the church should be a place we know how to use story. Yeah. But we don't so much. So I think that's right. a, a place, a growing edge for us, or a place that people could come and share their own stories as they try to find their own sense of, and comfort's not the right word, I want to say, their comfort with death, but their willingness to explore what they believe or how they feel about death. Yeah, I'm thinking, um, I like that idea of story. I mean, it's a narrative story. It's so powerful. And, um, you know, it, it's especially in more evangelical traditions, it's in our DNA in the, in the, under the vein of a testimony. And a testimony, you know, while, you know, here at this nice, you know, mainline Protestant church, we don't do testimonies, really. Um, but there is something that could be really powerful about it. And I think it's really valuable. I think even just sharing one's salvation story, it's, it's a really important thing to do. And I encourage people to do that. It gets a little emotionally manipulative. Um, and some people feel like their story might be diminished because like, well, I don't have, you know, I wasn't a big story. Yeah. I wasn't involved in drugs and, and crime and I wasn't in jail. I, all I did was, you know, s steal some pencils in third grade. And yeah, I mean, um, but I'm wondering, if, you know, what would it be like to expand our understanding of a testimony to say, let's talk about death. We're going to have a, this is going to be a safe place to talk about death. And we're going to start with testimonies for someone to say, I want to talk about my own life and my understanding of death or someone else to say I want to talk about when my mother died and what those final moments were like. What do you think about about that idea of expanding that idea of testimony? I think it'd be really powerful and could be really helpful and I think um, that's why I love there's and right now there are some really great memoirs um, mm -hmm. about which is a genre I love which is yeah, one and, of that my, you, and that you do not. Yeah, it's one of my uh, least favorite genres but there are some good memoirs out there just because you've not read really good ones. Um, <laughs> but I think sometimes to read someone else's story yeah. um, or collections of stories, so whether it be Carrie Egan's On Living or um, Kate Braystrip's, which is one of my all-time favorite memoirs, Here If You Need Me, mm. that really begins with the story of her husband's death um, in when they had four young children. Wow. Um, yeah. And was he was a state patrol officer who was killed in this freak car accident. Mm. Um, and um, so it's the story of his death, but then her following in the path he'd planned to become a minister. And um, she works with wow. the... Um, Search and Rescue in Maine. Uh, so oh, people I've heard some of her stories. Who, yeah, yeah, and so she's, she's a powerful amazing. storyteller. Um, but I think those are kinds of ones that as you begin to hear other stories, I think then it gives you a sense of the kind of stories that you could tell. Because I think sometimes, whether it be stories of our own faith, um, we feel like there's only one kind of right testimony. Yeah. Or there's only one kind of right story about death. Or there's only one. So, And they could be... Um, 
small stories or big stories, um, but they're all really right. important kind of narrative pieces. So, would you encourage people every now and again to just to look at their loved ones and such, and to and to really embrace the idea of like someday they will no longer be here, yeah. and just to let that emo- those emotions kind of happen? Is that do you think that's a healthy thing to do? Yeah, I think it. I think it can be. Um, or. I think the important part, as much as storytelling, is also having conversations that matter. Mm Because I think that's one of the things hospice does really well, is trying to help people say, what are the conversations you need to have or you'd like to have? But how do we not wait until someone has a diagnosis, a terminal diagnosis, to have those conversations? Um, So as I work with congregations on um, how do you share your, your wishes for your end of life? Right, right. So... Part of it is you need to have conversations with your family or the friends or whoever's going to help you um, fulfill those wishes at the end of life. How do you begin to have those conversations on an ongoing basis? So right. Christmas is coming up. It'll be after. Yep. Before. It it'll already be past. But Merry Christmas, there's, everyone. There's all kinds of holidays when your family's gathered or your friends are gathered. And not have a list of questions, but how do you say... Here's the question we're going to all respond to this year. And make mm. it fun. I yeah. always say, you know, don't make it morbid or don't make it so serious that you can't have. But how do you <laughs> share those um, conversations? And I did a series with some grandparents and their grandchildren, and we videotaped the interviews. And one of the questions was the grandchild asked the grandparent, how would you like to be remembered after you die? The grandchild asked the grandparent. Yeah. Okay, yeah. How would you? Yeah. It was amazing. A, the grandchild was able to to acknowledge this grandparent's not going to always be here. Right. How do you want to? How do you want to be remembered? And mm-hmm. then the grandparent get to say to this grandchild, and most of them were like six to twelve, okay, kind of that age range. Yeah. And it was powerful to say, oh, wow. and it wasn't that I was the most successful engineer in my company or I was the most but it was that I loved when we would go out and do x or Mm. that it was but it was much more about that love or much more about that time spent well spent um but we could be having those kind of meaningful conversations or sharing stories in the same way yeah and and, and, you know that's a brilliant pivot when you're at your family meal and politics comes up Exactly. Nothing changes the tenor of everything than you saying, like, let's talk about death. <laughs> there you go. I mean, just, I mean, that'll stop everything else right go. away. So that's, I mean, then that's for free for all of you listeners out there. there that's go. a family survival guide. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Let's talk about death and then see where it goes from there. Well, it's, it's interesting that um, even when we're working on this end of life planning or right. how do you share wishes, I was at a, with a congregation recently and two sisters who are probably in their 60s are both members of this congregation and they've got young adult children and the young adult children are not wanting to talk about any of this oh wow so we were talking about you know how what are ways that you could move beyond knowing i need to fill out this form or this set of papers or whatever and so my suggestion is how to make it fun 
which Make I know it sounds fun. But if but death I, can't be fun, then why bother? <laughs> well, but I think it yeah. is about saying it doesn't have to be so tense or so right. serious. Yeah, yeah. And so I loved, and I told them I was going to steal their idea. So these two sisters are going to have a family dinner. They're going to bring all the paperwork together, and they're calling it the Last Supper. Oh, that's great. So I think, but again, they got the idea that how do you make it a time in which you share and um, we're using a tool called Five Wishes that I think is really helpful. Mm. It's much more narrative. It doesn't feel so legal. Right. Um, but it also helps you think through what is it that I would want. Um, yeah. We actually have this conversation at our household, I mean, all seriousness about how we want our bodies because my, my wife, she keeps saying, I want, I want to be cremated. And I keep, and my kids all know this now, I want to just be put in the ground and I want to decompose. I told them that. I said, I want a tree to grow into me. I want bugs to eat my body. I want to just slowly do not burn me. But, I mean, it's almost become a joke, yeah. which is probably healthy. I think, I think that is healthy. And I think um, one of the other pieces when we talk about why the church, I don't think, deals with it very well, we've really removed death and all the logistics that go with bodies and yeah. things are far away from my mom could remember when she was small and when someone died the body was brought back to the house yeah. and that's where the viewing happened in yeah. a dining room or a parlor or wherever and the family had much more up close connection yeah. with with a- death there's a real sterilized aspect. The last church I served, the cemetery was on the church grounds, and it was wonderful to, after the funeral, to walk with the casket just around the church while the bell rings and go right there and put the body in the ground. Much better than, all right, everyone get in your cars. In a half an hour, we'll get to the cemetery, and, you know, and we would have forgotten everything that we, you know, the emotionality would have been lost. And I mean, it's just the way, it's, it's, that's how it is now. But well, it is, other than Kate Braystrup and okay. the memoir I love. I'm going to tell people that uh, we're going to have a list of all of these books that Catherine brought, so I'll put it on the show notes so you can see them. I mean, she has a lot of great books. But anyway, um, after her husband, after Drew was killed, she called the funeral home, and she wanted to go down and prepare his body. Oh, wow. And they were not thrilled. I'm, I imagine not. But two other state troopers and her mother went with her, mm. and they, she bathed his body, she dressed him in his uniform, um, yeah. and she thought, this is what <clears throat> Drew would have done for me, mm. and in all the time that I shall live without him, time roaring and tumbling at me like some merciless black avalanche, I will be able to tell myself that I bore our love with my own hands all the way to the last hard place. So for her, it was this very important to yeah. deal with his body when he was no longer there. Yeah. Um, and I thought that struck me because I don't think I would ever right. have thought that that was something. doesn't mean it's right for everyone, right, but right. for her, it was one of the ways for her to begin to face his death. That, I mean, that whole action is very symbolic of embracing the death, as opposed to distancing, it, and that might be part of what you know. You know, churches can make that space to embrace. I, we did. We recently. We do every year. We have an All Saints Sunday, and it's a Sunday where I deliberately preach a sermon that's going to be hard to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, one that just says, "We've lost people. I want you to think about them now." 
and I want you to cry and I want you to feel sadness mm -hmm. um, and then let's find God in that and we want to I want to get to that part of the conversation but you know that that idea of like we let's let's go ahead and embrace the pain of death and I think there's re there's a real importance to that uh, and my hope is that on the other side you would be in a much more healthy relationship with the loss I'm having been in that place of of grief and pain right. and then it's a still a safe space for that pain right. um, especially knowing you're not alone to see you know this last one or a lot of people were crying and not because of me because the music was amazing um, but probably to be crying and then to know other people around you were crying I imagine that makes it a little bit easier I think so I think that's one of the things that um, I think sometimes in church people look around and think everyone else has it all figured out mm. or they're all coping much better than I am and so we can't risk being our true selves or showing right. our true emotions. And so I think for you all to make space where it's not manipulative, right, but right. space that tears are not something you need to feel about which you don't feel embarrassed. Right. Yeah. But rather it is um, really a token or a symbol of how much a person or people were loved and the loss yeah. that is experienced. Um Someone once said to me, the depth of the grief speaks to the depth of the love. Yeah. And I thought, that's really nice. I wish I thought of that myself, because yeah. I used it a lot since, but it's not mine. Yeah, no, but I think that's right. And I think to say that um, a part of death is that for those of us still living, there is a loss. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's where um, I think sometimes Christians get it wrong. When they say we shouldn't cry, and now I know there's some cultural differences too, and I want to be sensitive to that. So it's, but to, but to go so hard as so far as to say, you know, death should be a celebration because it's a homecoming, right? Um, and and I think there needs to be some reality to that, especially those who have been suffering the last stages of their life. To say they're no longer suffering, they're living with God. That gives such hope, and that gives joy. But I also want to name and recognize that it hurts to say goodbye. Right. And, and, and we could even say, well, we'll see them again. Yes, we'll see them again, but we don't know when, and we don't know in what way. And even when we see them again, it will never be like it was. And so it hurts to say goodbye. Well, and even um, one of my favorite members of a congregation I served, his wife had advanced stages of Alzheimer's. Mm. And... Um, he talked about even though her death in many ways would be a blessing, he knew the kind of hole it would leave in his life, even yeah. though she had no longer, she, for a long time she hadn't been yeah. the person whom he'd <clears throat> loved for so long, even though he continued to love her. But his life had become so, it's so circled around his visiting her every day. And so he, even her death, meant a loss as far as routine or right. a loss of how his life was ordered or so even in yeah. those situations where there is sort of that blessing I don't that's not I'm not comfortable using that language right. but you know there is a sense that there are things worse than death um, yeah. as far as suffering or whatever yeah. that still doesn't mean that there's not real grief that goes along right. with that person's right. death yeah, and you know, I mean, to be honest, I've, I've looked past that. I've glossed over that. And I've been caught off guard or corrected. I mean, not 
grossly. I'm not mad, I, you know, I've been appropriate, but at times when working with people and, you know, their spouse is just in a lot of pain or just really a jerk, um, I mean, just whatever, and, and they say, boy, it's just really hard to be with this person. I just, and so I, so when the person dies, I'm like, well, you must have relief. And to see that grief still, yeah. I'm caught off guard again and again. You think I'd learn, but, you know, I can only do so much. Uh, but yeah, to say even if even if it has been hard those final times, there's still something about that person, and then maybe the memories, maybe just even be able to have that physical contact. I mean, the routine. Yeah. I there's still loss, and and I think it's important to name that. I think it is too. I I don't know if this is the right time, but I think one of the things I'm becoming more and more aware of, and there's a another great new book um, called Mercy. Life in the Season of Dying, and it's by a pastor. He makes a point that I've become increasingly aware of is that clergy, we don't deal with our own grief very well. Mm. Um, and as we have congregations, as our yeah. demographics age, and we have more deaths per capita than would have happened in the past, because um, we've got more members who are in that older demographic, um, how do we in healthy ways deal with our own grief about loss of individuals? Right. So that's a piece of it because there are often people we've known for a long time and come to really love, but we also know that their death has a um, systemic effect in within the congregation. The system changes yep. with the loss of certain individuals. Um, and so how do we deal with our own grief that I don't think we do very well? Right. I think that's... That's uh, yeah, I think it's very fair, especially if we're the ones who are supposed to officiate the service, um, because then then we have to disassociate ourselves from our emotions, right. to a degree. I mean, hopefully you're not we're not robots, right. uh, you know. But there is a point like we can't start bawling because we make it, it no longer feel safe for everyone else. Right, right, and we're the ones trying to offer healthy pastoral care to families, to right. close friends, to the congregation. Um, and yet, and then we get busy because we've got yeah. all these other responsibilities. Yep. And at what point do we say we've not stepped back and, um, and yeah. dealt with our own grief or our own feelings about death? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really great point. I think it'd be, it would be good for clergy to get together and talk about death in a place that they're not with their congregation, where they don't have to feel like they're hand-holding. I think so. We're looking at um, partnering my office with um, another office to do a day in the spring for clergy to talk about how they handle their own grief as mm -hmm. they have. And it came out of a training I was in, which the trainer um, was new in a pastor of a congregation, and he realized he'd had more deaths during that first year than would have been the norm yeah. anywhere else he'd ever served. Yeah. And he realized he wasn't doing nothing for self-care. And so that's kind of became the idea. And so um, the director of one of the centers and I were going to talk about it, oh, about good. how do we do that. So I think um, good. that could be a piece. Yeah, um, that sounds really important. Yeah. So, um, where do we? How, where do you see God? In in then uh, I've, I've already made allusions to some kind of theology theology that we kind of rolled our eyes at, um, or we say ah, it may be helpful. Uh, who knows? Um, but where do you see God when you're in the conversations about death? I 
for me, the healthy conversations are where people are able to to share their real questions mm. that Pat answers about, well, they're in a better life or they're you know a better place or um, God, you know, whatever the statements. Mm-hmm. But for me, mm-hmm. um, for them to be able to share their real doubts or their real questions or even their anger um, yeah. or their uncertainty, um, because I live with a lot of ambiguity, and so I'm comfortable with that. Yeah, um, yeah. But for them not to have to feel like they have to kind of um, hold what they consider to be the party line uh, theologically, but to say, help them say, well, what questions do you have? And right, let right. them begin to voice that. So for me, that's the helpful piece, because my sense is that um, none of that bothers God too much. So it's almost as if, so it's, it's like God is in the questions. For me, God often is in the questions, and my real belief is um, that God is always present and that yeah. God um, is a God who suffers along with us. Mm-hmm. Um, right, right. And I have, I have colleagues and some really good friends who find that not a helpful or comforting, as one of them said, I'm not sure how that's comforting to the person at the cemetery. For me, it's um, what it's what makes sense. Uh, yeah. But I think I don't ever impose that theology on someone else either. But to find out kind of theologically where they are or how they understand where God is. Right, right. Um, I don't know how else to, I mean, to tell someone, because grief can be such an isolating experience, um, to say you're not alone, God is with you. I would imagine would give a lot of hope just to know that you're not alone. Yeah. I would think and, and it, it speaks to the importance of a good funeral service. And I know, um, I can't remember the author's names who wrote about you know, long and, and Thomas long and wrote with someone else. And I can't remember the other guy. He's a funeral director and has written a lot for Christian century. You would know it if you saw it probably, but uh, they've written about good funerals and such. But I mean, the importance of that funeral service in creating that space for grief. Um, and especially, I mean, this, I, I, anytime I get a phone call from the funeral home to do a funeral, people aren't part of the church. I'm like, yes, right away, yes. I mean, as long as I'm in town. Right. Um, because otherwise, where are they going to get, you know, I'm sure they'll find some other pastor who will do a fine job. But I don't know. There's a lot of, there's a lot of great pastors in Rhode Island. Um, so I'm sure it'll be fine. But to be able to at least say, at least there'll be a little bit of time to create that safe space. But our conversation has been more about having that conversation before the funeral. Right. And really in trying to make that safe space. And it, it might be interesting for pastors to think about, now that we're past Christmas and you're starting to think about Lent, hopefully you've planned Lent by now and you're already done um, thinking about Easter and now working on your summer plans. But if you're not there yet, um, think about picking a Sunday in Lent, and this really is appropriate. And preach a funeral sermon. You know, what would be your typical funeral sermon, that the funeral message that you offer? Universalize it, preach it, and then leave space for conversation. That, that might be a really interesting place to start. I think as long as you're open, this is yep. my caveat, that there might be some answers that wouldn't be your answers. Oh, they wouldn't go to my church then. <laughs> no, not you. No, no, right. But, but no, but I mean, I think everyone I falls think, in line with me. I think no. to um, yeah, that's imp- that's important. Um, to say, are there? Could there be comments that for you 
would be sort of deal breakers or would be right. so outside. So if someone said, you know, I'm really not sure about this heaven thing. For me, it would be, well, it's all part of God's plan. And then it's I, I I have to offer a soft corrective to that every time I say, well, that, you know, I, I that's not how I understand. Or, I mean, I use a lot of I statements, so I don't say you have to believe this, but I want to offer another way of thinking. But yeah. I was I was recently at an American Baptist national event at which a speaker said very clearly that every death God causes and it all has a purpose oh wow and got huge amount of applause wow and i couldn't get out of the room fast enough <laughs> and so i went back and reread kate bowler and everything happens for a reason um and luckily had a, a colleague there with whom who felt the same way I did, and we yeah. talked about later. You know, how do you, how do you deal with that? Yeah. Um, so it's so problematic. Um, it's so problematic. So, but I, I, I also understand that maybe that is comforting to some people because right. it, it gives an answer instead of leaving the, ambiguity. the question. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a, a, yeah, and it's important for us. I mean, that's good pastoral care is to say if this is the comfort you need right now, I'm not going to take that away from you. Right. And if this is the comfort you're going to need for the rest of your time, okay. Yeah. But also, as good pastors, we want to make sure. But let me offer something else just in case. Yeah. Here's what makes sense to me, or here's yeah. what I found helpful, and um, and that's where I find sometimes really wonderful pieces of memoir or short pieces that give a, a softer or tell a story that's different right, right. provides a different narrative and it's because I think sometimes we end up with what we think is a the acceptable theological position but if we really broke it down it wouldn't make much sense but if we had a different narrative yep. then maybe it could be more helpful like so. good illustrations for a sermon yeah I think it can be. That's a good reason for me to read memoirs, just for sermon illustrations. There you go. There you go. <laughs> as long as there's a purpose for it. But this is, I mean, I think this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, I, the, the, the conversation about death is really important. Uh, you know, Catherine has brought this whole 10, her 10 favorite books related to death. Um, so you'll email this to me and... I will email it. And I'll oh. put it on the, the show notes because she has nice descriptors as well. So what do we call it? Uh, a cited bibliography? There you go. There you go. So, so, yeah, that would be great. And, you know, I would say as we enter this next year, our hope our plans are to do something like a death, death cafe, but yeah. to really provide some spaces where we'll either read some memoirs or have people come together or to try to model in some congregations, um, knowing that it just takes some practice to be able to think and talk about death in open ways, but I think um, it's really an opportunity the church um, yeah. has. It, yeah, it definitely is. I, and it, um, we've barely scratched the surface, I think. And, and, and folks, let us know what, you're do, what your churches are doing and your regions and such, because it's, it's not anything where we want ownership. Um, we believe in the broader, <laughs> um, the broader ministry of, of, the, of the body of Christ, and so want to encourage others. So you know, you email me, 12enough at gmail.com. Let me know what you're doing or put it on Facebook. Uh, but do something. And especially Lent's coming up. Great opportunity to talk about that. 
Uh, Captain, do you have any self-promotion you want to push? You have a website to go to or anything like that? We're check back. Keep an eye on Jonathan's emails because we've got we're redoing our website, so uh, we'll we'll share it along then. That'll be the Abcory website, the right. American Baptist Churches of Rhode Island. Uh, and if you want to find Catherine, um, you know, call the office and set up an appointment. Don't don't stalk her. That's weird. Um, you attend First Baptist America, right? That's where my membership is. I rarely get to be there because I get to be in so many of our other congregations oh, preaching, but that is my home congregation. What, what time do they worship? 11 o'clock on Sundays. 11 o'clock? So late. So late. <laughs> it, unless in summer, then it's earlier, but right now it's 10 well, 11. I, so yeah, I, mean, I, I like people to promote their home places there, of worship. There. So you can go to First Baptist Church of America, fine preaching, fine in music. In America. First what, Baptist Church in America. Did I say of America? Sorry, folks, you lost. Um, just First Baptist Church in America, not of America. Just prepositions. All right, so fine preaching, fine music, great chandelier <laughs> at 11 o'clock. You can always find me at the First Baptist Church of East Greenwich at 9.30. We have decent music, and the preaching works. <laughs> no chandeliers. Catherine, thanks, thank you so much for being on the thanks, show. Thanks, Jonathan. That was a brilliant conversation. And not because of anything I said or did, but because Catherine really brings a lot of good insight, a lot of good thoughts. Um, she's, she's just really good. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I really did. I was pushed um, in, in ways that are appropriate to continue to think about how we talk about death um, with family, with friends, and especially in the church. It's going to happen. You can try to avoid it. You can try to run from it. But it's just it's just going to happen. Uh, if you have any comments or questions about this show, I encourage you to send those to 12enough at gmail.com. That's 12 right now, 12enough at gmail.com. You know, let us know what, what has worked for you if you've talked about death, those kind of conversations you've had, and the impact it has had on your family and friends and such. It really is important to have those kind of, kind of conversations. If you want to see any of the notes that uh, I, about the show, including that list of books that Catherine really recommends that you read, go to the show notes, and that's 12enough.com, and it'll be under this episode. And um, I also encourage you to follow uh, follow me on Facebook, Facebook slash 12enough, and if you want, you can follow me on Twitter, for whatever that's worth. That's, you know, sometimes I post stuff, sometimes I, I don't. Uh, but, you know, do all that stuff, and definitely go to iTunes and like and rate the show. Uh, that really does help us get the word out to other people. Tell other people about it. Share it with your friends, with your family, with your enemies. Share it. Just share about the show. And as always, thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening. 12 Enough is a podcast about Christian faith and culture in the modern age. Your hosts were Jonathan Malone, the pastor of the First Baptist Church of East Greenwich, Rhode Island and Catherine Palin, the Associate Executive Minister for Elder Care Ministries with the American Baptist Churches of Rhode Island. The thoughts, ideas, opinions, notions of brilliance, moments of pause, moments wondering about how much longer we need to live or should live or can live, and anything else of those nature do not reflect 
uh, the denominations, the churches, the family, the friends, the institutions represented, the books mentioned, authors, or anyone else of that nature. These are their own thoughts, ideas, ruminations, notions. This is their podcast.